millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparation. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me or sound like I'm me. I'm sick of being a side Indian character. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. How are you supposed to feel that exploitation is the best you can LGBTIQ get? LGBTIQ rights are black rights. We have always been here. Black queers, we will always be here. This is Amir Rahman. I'm Francesca Ramsey. I'm Gary Foley. And you're listening to The Race Card. Welcome to The Race Card. I'm your host, Amina Ziyard. And joining me in studio today is my co-host, Ahmed Yusuf. Hey. So before we begin, we'd like to do an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet, and we pay respects to their elders, past, present, and future. This land was never ceded, and the processes of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. We've ha- we have Bakthi Puvanantharan in studio today, and we look at what we have in the bin this week and a featured story on homelessness and the housing crisis. What's going on, people? This is Akala, and right now you're listening to The Race Card. Big up. So today in studio, we've got Bakthi Puvanantharan. Welcome to The Race Card. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a joy. I know. I've been like looking forward to having this interview because you are someone I look up to. I feel like the first time I met you, I think I was like fangirling a little bit. I try to like, keep it down. Um, but yeah, that's just um, that's just how I feel. Right back at you, Amina. <laughs> <laughs> Bhakti, I guess, how did you get into to writing uh, and I guess journalism in a, in more broadly? Mm, so I started at uni. Um, I would say I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, um, actually, more honestly, I didn't know whether I wanted to be a lawyer or a journalist. So that's why I I could do a double degree back then. So I did a double degree in law and, um, journalism and I thought I would probably do more broadcast, but, um, I also have always loved writing and, um, always enjoyed reading. And so when I got to uni, um, I met, One of my tutors was actually editor of Farago, which is Melbourne Uni's magazine. He encouraged me to submit. Uh, He had previously been an editor and then he kind of went on to be a journalism tutor. And so I started writing for them and then I edited Farago and I kind of just went from there. I just fell into this community of writers at Melbourne Uni. Because you um, initially started as a broadcaster. I think you did stuff with Sin and... 3CR and Triple R. That's right, yeah. So I started, actually the first one was 3CR. It was a community um, thing. So I'm Tamil and the Tamil community has a couple of shows on 3CR. Once Tamil language, my Tamil's not that good. So I did the English language show, which was called the IAO show. And it was kind of aimed at young people. And we talked a lot about um, the Tamil people's struggle. And Yeah. I guess like, because you, you've, you've been doing broadcast and you're doing writing, I guess... What was it like choosing or, or trying to figure out which one you wanted to do? 
I mean, I didn't really get a choice. It was just whatever opportunities were there, and I pursued both as voraciously as I could. I was writing freelance um, as well as doing, you know, um, unpaid work for community radio stations because I love community radio, but also because, you know, I wanted to upskill and, and keep learning. Yeah. So you mentioned that you were doing a double degree in, um, was it journalism and law? Mm-hmm. Yep. So how did your parents kind of take the idea that you were going to become a writer and editor? Was there any kind of, you know, uh, how do we say, like, any Backlash. clash maybe? Like, yeah. So my dad thinks that I did journalism because I want to be famous, <laughs> um, which is not true, because uh, I just don't think that that's a viable um, I, would, I, I just would outcome. think that you would be doing acting if you want to be famous right. or music. Yeah, correct. There's a, yeah, I mean, you have a, I mean, leaving Twitter aside, you're pretty much an anonymous when you're a journalist, right? Um, but I think my parents were really, really good about it because they saw how hard I was working. And, um, you know, my mum's policy has always been you can do whatever you want as long as you're the best at it, which is a lot of pressure. But, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's always been something they've been proud of me for doing. What's that pressure like? Um, I don't really think about it very much. It's probably, it's probably that message when I was a child is probably how I now put pressure on myself to be the best I can be and to keep striving. So when you said that you were voraciously pursuing these, you know, two areas, was there an element of trying to prove to your parents that you were doing the right thing? I, I'm sorry, I'm, I don't mean to say like all people of color's parents are this way, but like I'm just curious because I feel that's what I'm doing right now with my parents. <laughs> trying to justify what I'm doing is like the good thing for me. Or was that not an issue? Um, I think there were times when they would question like where is this going and how are you going to make money um, and how are you going to provide for yourself and I think, you know, uh, my you know my response was to that was well you know I worry about those things too and that that is why I'm I'm doing it. I don't think I necessarily did it to prove it to them, but to prove to myself, um, you know, that a, a career in the media was at least viable for me. Yeah. What was that like? Because like I know like 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 I mean similarly like I was like to me Ahmed, you're doing all this radio and and podcast stuff like. But, but are you making any money? Like, mm. what's that like trying to, trying to, I guess, climb that ladder? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, for me, like, my my mum loves the radio. Um, we grew up listening to the ABC. So for her, like, if when I talk about radio, she knows what I'm talking about and she has a, a point of reference, I guess, um, especially when I started getting, you know, I like I had casual work at the ABC sometimes and that for her I think that legitimized my career um so you know uh, yeah on the other hand I did lots of unpaid work and uh I think I I think especially because I was talking about the Tamil community they really supported that as well so it was you know it wasn't just about work it was meaningful to them as as migrants and and for you guys, you know, you're doing a show about race. So, I mean, it's a similar project. You you talked about, like, uh, un, unpaid work there. Like, how does that make you feel like having to work but not get paid? Is there is there some sort of frustration there when you were doing that? 
well, so my theory is, you know, if it's for a not-profit, then not-for-profit, then unpaid work is, like, it's something I'm really happy to do. I mean, I'm unpaid here now, and I'm really happy to do it because neither of you um, are getting anything other than, you know, skills and all that kind of thing. Whereas um, I actually didn't do a great deal of unpaid work for a for-profit. So I did a lot of volunteering at stuff. I, I directed the National Young Writers Festival, and that's a not-for-profit um, you know, it's an arts organisation. I, I rarely kind of wrote anything for a for-profit website that, you know, that I didn't get paid for. So I, that's how I balance it in my mind. You're working for um, The Age right now as the um, arts and entertainment editor? No, I'm actually now the small business editor. I just changed this week. Yeah, how, oh, yeah. So you told me about that. Yes. <laughs> I, what's that like? Um, that change in role. Yeah. So it's been really hard because I am not that uh, well versed necessarily in the intricacies of financing small businesses and all that kind of thing. But on the other hand, um, it's really good for me, I think, to do a stint in business and to be an all rounder um, in the industry and have a really wide ranging knowledge. I can now say. You know, I've been, I'm a, I did general, you know, when I was working in radio, that was um, Adam Ballarat and ABC, that was general news. And I've done arts and entertainment. And now that I'm doing business, I think it's really good for me to develop that rigor um, as well. Yeah. Because I, I was like looking up at some of your articles, you're writing about, um, I think, Hamilton. Yeah. Hamilton coming to Australia, yes. which is awesome. Things like, things mm. of that nature. And then mm. you're, then you're switching to business. Mm. Was that daunting? Yeah, I don't think it necessarily daunting in so much as I know that I have lots of help and that everyone at the age is really, really generous. Um, but I am sad to stop writing about, you know, to leave that behind because I love arts and entertainment. It's a real passion of mine. But on the other hand, now I can just enjoy it for what it is rather than worry about having to write about it. So there's, you know, good and bad and everything. Right. So when you talk about, you know, doing this as a work, you know, doing art as a work versus doing something as a leisurely kind of occupation. Mm. How does that differ when you're doing it as a job versus doing it um, as a kind of passion, leisurely pursuit? I guess when you're a journalist, you're kind of always switched on. Um, And when you're an entertainment journalist, that means that whenever you're watching any, whenever you're consuming any entertainment or um, reading any entertainment media, then you're automatically thinking about work. Whereas now, I mean, I'll probably still do it to some degree, but now I don't have any pressure to constantly come up with ideas for entertainment. So I'll just be able to watch TV and not think about angles, which is nice. And so speaking of, you know, the projects that you're doing, what do you feel is most challenging, like, in your career? I know the small business is something you're not comfortable with, but is that would you say that's your most challenging, or has there been another, um, another challenging? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I did that classic thing, moving to regional, um, to a regional area to pursue my career. So I moved to Ballarat and did uh, casual radio producing there. So I didn't even have a full time job, um, and that was. That w- and I was balancing that against another job in Melbourne, so I was commuting and, you know, moving to somewhere new and trying to figure out what matters to people there and developing contacts in a new town. That's hard. Um, it's, you know, you can't um, you can't just, like, get on Twitter and figure out who's who in 
a regional town. I mean, it's a city. It's a it's a it's a city, and it's a it's an amazing place. I really loved it in the end, but it did take a while to kind of warm up in that role as well. What's it like having to move from, say, home, which is Melbourne, to this new place, regional, away from home, hours from, say, like I guess from where you're comfortable, mm. and and also it's your first job, like paid full time job, right? Mm. It was, it was my first journalism job, yeah. First, like, yeah, proper journalism job. Um, I, I was really proud of myself. Like, it was hard work, but I loved it. I um, I was a mornings producer for ABC Ballarat um, with Steve Martin, and I just, uh, I felt like I was doing, you know, that, that was the classic route that journalists always took, right? They would always go regional and come back, and I felt like I was... Um, doing the right thing and and I wasn't there was such a sense of camaraderie again with the staff there I feel like so much of why people stay in journalism and love journalism and want to stay in it is because journalists are fun you know like my experience is that um journalists are some of the smartest you know people I know and they're it's they're they're as at the ABC and at Fairfax I've only had like had really positive experiences of people being generous with me yeah and I guess with journalism, there's a, I guess, a flair of versatility that you got to have because yeah. you've got to be able to cover like all kinds of ground. Right. And how does how does that feel um, to be versatile? Do you think there's pressure to that? Do you think that's just a personal challenge or? I I really like it. I'm I mean, uh, before the interview, Ahmed was saying that like, you know, um, I've done lots of different things, and so I probably haven't specialized. And that's like on one on one hand, that's not great. But on the other hand, it, you know, I I love that. I love learning new things and meeting a lots of new people. And um, yeah, I felt like actually going to um, going to Ballarat. If I had gone to Ballarat and I was just working at an, a small office, I think it would have been a lot harder for me to integrate into the town. But because I did it through media, I got to know lots and lots of people. From that, and I felt like I was a uh, uh, much more quickly a part of the community there. Yeah, I guess because you're working for Fairfax right now, and mm-hmm. this whole backdrop of Fairfax hashtag Fair Go Fairfax, and and all the ba- and, and all kind of like journalists losing their jobs, and you talk about loving journalists and they're the kind of fun people and and all this kind of thing. What's it like seeing colleagues and friends lose their jobs? Um, I think it's. It's pretty heartbreaking when people who are quite energetic kind of lose energy and lose passion because they're just tired. Um, and and then also you're seeing, I think you're seeing a few kind of awesome mid-career, like younger people basically, decide to leave journalism because they see it as a contracting industry. And that's that's really hard. But on the other hand, what you'll find is the people who stay, people who really, really, really want to stay, and um, that that's that means that that passion is, you know, still really. You can feel it. You can feel it. I mean, it it gets depressing. That's you know, of course, whenever cuts happen, and they kind of loom over you, and they take months to roll out. That that can be really hard, but. Um, yeah. Are you I guess are you ever afraid that like maybe you're vulnerable to 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 a job loss in that sense? Well, uh no, be, uh, but be, that's because I'm not on a permanent contract. So I don't uh, like my so 
I've been on three maternity leave contracts in a row at Fairfax. I've never had a permanent job there. And the first one was as deputy arts. The second one was online entertainment. And now I'm small business editor. And I think because I come from a generation where contract work is quite normal, I just... I don't assume anything. I don't assume that I'm going to have a career at Fairfax forever. So, yeah, it, it's a different. I'm in a different place to a, a lot of people. What's that instability like? Because you, you're always like, when I'm working to the next contract, to the next contract. Yeah. Um, I think now I'm at a point where I feel like I have so many skills and careers and contacts that if I had to leave journalism, it would be really sad, but I could probably find a job outside journalism. And also, I feel like, you know, there are still some exciting opportunities in, within journalism in Australia that I'd love to take on if I had to leave Fairfax. But I'm really happy and I want, I want to stay. You know, one of the things that really struck me when I first met Hannah Donnelly, and she's the founder of um, Indigenous Tracks, well, she told me, oh, she didn't just tell me, she told a bunch of people, <laughs> it was at a talk. Um, she mentioned that she saw the future as utopian and while many people saw the future as dystopian. And I guess following that trail of thought, do you see a journalist utopia in the future? Like, I know a lot of people have a lot of, you know, how do you say, like, you know, how do, oh, what the Negativity, words? I guess. Negative, yeah, negative thoughts about the future of journalism, mm. you know, and people not um, valuing journalist labor. But um, I wanted to know what you thought about the future. But, I mean, that's what's happening to all labor because – all industries are seeing a digital disruption, right? Like taxi drivers have Uber and, you know, the manufacturing industry is losing to online shopping and, um, you know, there are changes to the economy everywhere. Mining is seeing a downturn. But then on the other hand, there are people who always find a way um, to do what they want and to um, take other people with them and, like, you know, a, a rising tide lifts all boats, you know, to, to grow what they think is important. I, um, I'm what, like, I, I know what all the, the struggles are. Like I, so many of my peers, uh, live that, you know, I'm just at the start of my career and I've never had a permanent contract, but on the other hand, um, I like, I, I think we're in a golden age of investigative journalism at Fairfax. I think, you know, if you look back, people like, Adele Ferguson and Nick McKenzie and Richard Baker are producing some of the best journalism in the world and that has real-life impacts. I mean, you know, if you look at the 7-Eleven story, like, that's that's genuinely inspiring. I, in my new job, I um, am in the business section, so I'm I'm with, you know, I'm, I, I sit near the likes of Adele and it's so inspiring. So I still see journalism as having an incredible role and it'll change and maybe it'll get smaller, but... I have, um, and or maybe it'll get bigger. You you never really know how these things are going to pan out. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm really optimistic. You you talk about investigative journalism there, and you're editing at the moment, and you've been editing um, in a number of your other jobs at Fairfax. Do you want to report? I do report. Yeah, yeah, I do report. You do? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, what do in, you mean in, by uh, report? I mean, in more in, in investigative journalism style reporting, like stuff that's happening at Fairfax, which is really interesting with the multimedia stuff that mm. Adele Ferguson's doing with the 7-Eleven stuff, mm. with the Commonwealth Bank stuff, mm, mm-hmm. that sort of, are you interested in that sort of thing? Um, I'm just interested at the moment in getting as much experience as I can. I feel like you have to be, there aren't many 
Adele's in the world. There aren't many Nick McKenzie's in the world. And, you know, I'm really happy to just be given the opportunity to write what I can. And it's not just them who do investigative reporting. I mean, um, yeah, every, everyone in Fairfax writes in-depth stories um, at, at different points in the week or the month. Uh, and even in arts, we did... I, I did some investigative stuff when I was in arts. Um, we exposed the Kylie Minogue wasn't paying her dances. Um, I also did uh, uh, like a federal government story about, um, you know, arts funding and how, you know, kind of a bit of corruption in that sense. So there's, it, it's not always top line, but yeah, you, we do develop those skills and I've been really lucky to do that follow. Also, you're you're one of the few. Uh, we're talking um, off air. You're one of the few, I guess, um, non-white people of color mm-hmm. in, I guess, editing roles, writing roles at, a, a, like a pretty decent level in journalism. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess, how does that make you feel? I'm proud and um, grateful, and I, I mean, I'm I'm really proud of my own endeavor but you don't really get anywhere on your own and I'm very grateful to the it's mainly been women in my networks who have lifted me up and my family who you know supported me and helped me and you know supported me through high school and then um who have always encouraged me so I like I just think about other people and I I think also Whenever I meet a you know an uncle in our community who has read my articles or heard me on the radio, that always makes me really proud and makes me feel like even though every day is not easy, that it's worth doing because people in our community do see like themselves reflected back when they see a Tamil name in the newspaper. How important is that representation to you? Um, I feel like you know we we just need so many more. Um, journalists of colour in Australia. I think it's kind of uh, just, it just gets forgotten because the industry is shrinking and, and it, things are getting harder, right? But So the change is slow, but it shouldn't get forgotten. It, um, I'm just about to go to a Women in Media event, but the, the emphasis on people of colour in media in Australia is so much less. And I think that's a real shame. It's, you know, it's very important to me because um, I don't want to be the only brown person you know, um, in a you know in any particular room that I walk in. Well, I guess what's it like being the only brown person in a particular room? Because oh. I know how it feels to be the only black person in newsrooms, like not necessarily newsrooms, but in university journalism newsrooms, mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we have lots of like wonderful writers of colour at Fairfax. Nasim Kadem is the deputy business editor. Um, she's Persian. Jane Lee in Canberra. Um, we've got. Um, Sushi Dash, who I mentioned, is a comment. Um, and obviously The Age kind of gave Walid Ali his first start writing columns. Um, that was Sushi as well. So, you know, we do have, you know, I do feel like Dewi Cook, who's the um, deputy arts editor now, we do have women of colour in amazing roles at Fairfax, but there just needs to be so much more. And, you know, it's it's interesting because I think it's, like, if you look at the business community compared to, like, the business, you know, white colour, just general, like, banks or whatever, you'll see so many more people of colour than you will in a, a newsroom. And that, that 
Why do you think that is? Uh, look, I think a lot of um, people would probably see it as a, not a viable career, as we've been talking about today. I think mean, uh, a lot of you know migrants might not see it as a bankable way to live. Um, so just you don't see that many people of color in the, the courses to start with, right? But then, um, but then you know, there's the attrition rate. Like you get to uni, and then after that, getting a job. Like it's so hard already. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's a shame because there's there's a feedback loop where you, if you don't see um, people who represent you know you or who represent different, diverse communities in the media, then you don't think that it's possible, right? So it's a feedback loop that young people. In, in year nine or ten, we'll just be like, well, that's not really for me. Then I guess then how did you get into that role that you are now? Because you obviously there wasn't a Tamil person at the Fairfax, at Fairfax, at like when you were younger or at the Herald Sun or mm. any kind of like media organization mm. and you, you broke through. I mean, there was Indira and I do. I mean, you know, I, I feel like for me though, I didn't... Um, I didn't necessarily look up to any one person, but it was just I, I would see the white presenters who I really admired and there are so you know, who I admired for their craft and I was like, Well I could do that. It, so yeah. On um, yeah. I guess that's and then also I saw um overseas you see so many people of colour succeeding in the media and that inspires you as well, right? Yeah. So when you're talking about um, in Australian media, there's not a lot of people of color. How does that translate to news reporting or the kinds of stories you see? Does the lack of, you know, how do we say it? Does the lack of diversity reflect, you know, cultural insensitivity or even just misrepresentation of stories involving people of color? Does that translate that way? Yeah, I think um, if you had more people of colour, you would have better stories about diverse communities. I don't think that, like, I think that's quite obvious. Um, uh, on the other hand, I think sometimes there's just, there's also just bad reporting. Like, it's, it's it, so there's bad reporting in all areas of journalism and it happens, um, you know, we, we, you know, we all see it everywhere. It, it does happen. It's unfortunate that it happens, but when it ha- when you're when you belong to a minority, and then you see that bad reporting happening on top of all the other injustices that might happen to your minority, that's when it feels particularly hard. I think. Yeah. Yeah, and I think something that really struck me was like a few years ago when someone had misreported that this is an ISIS flag when it's actually not a ISIS flag. Mm. During the siege, mm-hmm. it was actually a Shahada flag, and mm. so it's small things like that. That you know, as someone who's Muslim, someone who can read Arabic, for me, I can easily look at the iconography and realize it's wrong. But because maybe the newsroom is not diverse or they're just not knowledgeable, right. they clearly did not see the nuances. But to and me, they, that's yeah. just like yeah, they. If there, there, if there was an Arabic person in the newsroom, they could have easily fact-checked that, right? And yeah. actually, because like, I know your foreign editor um, is Mahir? Mahir Mugrabi, yeah. And I, I know that what he did... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Um, when the Sydney siege was happening, he got the ISIS flag, the Shahada flag, and and, and a number of different like uh, Arabic iconography, and like showed this is this, this is that, this is that, and then it ended up being on I think Fairfax's newspaper the, the following day as like a like a spread. Mm-hmm. So like, do you is is that I guess the you said the importance of diversity. Yeah, absolutely. And my here's a great example of that. He knows everything about the Middle East and he's you know, he speaks several languages so knowledgeable and so um well connected to uh, you know, Palestinian community. He's well connected to lots of Muslim communities in Melbourne. So he understands those issues and he knows how important it is to get it right. He that's why he's a world editor. Yeah, yeah, he's he's fantastic at his job, and we're really lucky to have him. I'm I'm so glad we did that. You know, I think um, in particular TV stations, the commercial TV stations, you'll see fewer um, non-white faces, and that's you know, those commercial TV stations are less likely to take risks, but they're also the ones that cover these breaking news stories increasingly about terrorism the fastest, and they have to have rolling coverage. So you can see then when those two issues collide. And I guess, like, particularly, we, we see the outcry when someone like Walid Ali gets into, I guess, a role like that mm-hmm. and the public outcry, we see people unhappy with the logies and etc. Mm-hmm. I guess, what do you think that says? Look, I think it's important to focus on the fact that actually the project is doing better with Walid and people love him and... He's the reason he's been nominated for a Logie is because millions of people watched his video about ISIS last year. Um, so I think what mostly what we're hearing is that people love Waleed. I think there is a certain section of society and a certain establishment who are threatened by the shifts, by the fact that someone like him who hasn't come up through TV, who's come from academia, who's come through sideways, can still be really successful and that threatens the whole model of how do you become a TV star, right? So people that are working towards being a TV star through acting or um, TV presenting, the bosses of those commercial TV worlds, they're confused and, you know, they're being left behind in this new world. So I think that's what you see. I think that's what fear often is, is just like, or hate often is, is just like that fear of like what's going on right now. Thanks for thanks for coming on the, the podcast, uh, Bhakti. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. And I, just, I guess before we go, um, can you let us let our listeners know where they can, I guess, find your stuff or, or follow you on social media and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, my hashtag, sorry, my Twitter handle is um, at Bhakti, so that's B-H-A-K-T-H-I. And um, if you just search that name, because there's only one Bhakti at the age, um, if you just search that name in um, at theage.com.au, um, then you, you'll see all my stories. Thank you again for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Tony Abbott was really never a deeply popular figure among the electorate. Yes. Tony Abbott faced some hostility of his own. 
And uh, really the reason why his prime ministership has crumbled is because he lost the support of the electorate and ultimately the governing Liberal uh, Party. This is not an easy so, day uh, for many people in this building. Leadership changes are never easy for our country. The, the prime minister's not going to lose, he's going to win. The, the prime minister's not going to lose, he's going to win. Uh, my pledge today is to make this change as easy as I can. We're now taking our trash out into the bin. We'll be highlighting some of the news stories that need to be thrown in there for the past week. Yeah, and uh, I don't know about you. Obviously, obviously, everyone's been reacting to Lemonade, and we have two stories that are kind of linked to Beyonce's Lemonade. One from the Sydney Morning Herald, a journalist called Jenna Clark. I think her name is... Let me just have a look. Um, yep, Jenna Clark. She wrote in, uh, in an article that she wrote. She said, so uh, referencing Lemonade, so what if an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander artist did the same thing? What if instead of songs like Pop a Bottle... Fill Me Up, uh, Jessica Malboy chronicled her experiences as a woman of the Kuku Yaliningi people through her performance. And I'm like, sure, you know, that would be great if Jessica Malboy felt like she should do that. But just because she's not doesn't mean or should take away from her music or whatever she's doing. And there are tons of Indigenous people um, across Australia that do very, really cool political music. So why don't you talk about them instead of trying to go... Jessica Mulboy, I want you to do this. And it's 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 funny because it comes from this 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 woman that's not from the community that has not I don't I don't think this person's ever met Jessica Mulboy as well. So it's it's kind of odd coming from someone who doesn't even know her, never seen her, probably never spoken to her, say, Hey, you should do this kind of music. And it's so condescending, I think, to make that statement that hey, you're doing the wrong kind of music. You should do this kind of music. And it's weird because there was this incident where Jessica Malboy actually couldn't perform because of anxiety. And people were being so harsh on her. And she did what she felt was right at the time. And perhaps maybe now she is just not at the point where she wants to make that kind of music. And still people are expecting so much of her. It's almost like Jessica Malboy can't be. Like yeah. she always has to be told what to do, what not to do. Yeah, and if Jessica Malboy wasn't indigenous... If she was just a white um, artist, no one would be saying, you should be talking about whiteness a lot. You know, like, tell, talk to us about, you know, all these subjects that would not apply to someone who wasn't Indigenous or who wasn't a person of colour. Trying to say, Beyonce is doing this, therefore you should do that. So, um, Jenna Clark, I just think that article and that whole premise should be going into a special place. It's called The Bin. And so following one of the terrible think pieces that have come about because of Lemonade, alongside Pierce Morgan, um, I don't know if you heard of Pierce uh, Morgan. Yeah, he had I've, that I've nonsense. heard of Pierce Morgan. He's an Arsenal <laughs> supporter and he's a horrible human being as well. Like, he there's, is, there's a, there's has a, a long history of being horrible. It? So the Guardian decided to find its own Pierce Morgan and they apparently found L. Hunt which is, uh, I think, the Australian version of Pierce Morgan. But anyway, so she wrote a think piece on how to, ex like, explaining what Lemonade was from 
beginner to beehive as she calls it and i just feel like look this is like peak white splainy this is like the worst thing you can do right now and especially like the guardian doing something like that when the guardian uk had someone like ijeoma who wrote an incredible piece in response to lemonade which is written by a black woman um I think that was just weird that they didn't just share that and maybe commission that article to an actual black woman or a black femme. And on top of that, the interesting thing that I noticed is that Iggy Azalea, sorry, getting her name wrong. She made those comments saying like Becky was a slur and I just feel like she is one, white, and two, Australian. And the least maybe that someone like El Hunt could have done is maybe comment on that that's where you that's where it matters that's where you got to like talk about stuff and they didn't they completely missed it and that's just you know a national embarrassment continuing to proliferate and that needs to go in the bin and and also i just found uh, the other day i was on twitter and i was reading i was reading chris hayes twitter i'm not, i'm going to find this right now hold on um and uh, and you know what's really funny is that yes, yeah, you, uh, yeah sorry Oh, sorry. This is just yeah. really funny. All right. So uh, Chris Hayes uh, and his four-year-old. This is a story about Chris Hayes and his four-year-old. Chris Hayes is um, anchor on NBC. So he says, Today my four-year-old and I rode the elevator with Iggy Azalea. Hashtag take your kid to work day. Um, and then he goes, and we were all pretty shocked when my daughter looked up at Iggy and said, keep Beyonce's name out of your mouth. <laughs> that was just. Uh, I saw that. I loved it. I think I liked it. I loved it. Sorry, now you can have like reactions on Facebook. I forgot. Um, yeah, and you know the funny thing is like all these people are having conversations now. You know about Becky, who is Becky with the good hair, and Iggy coming and saying like Becky's a slur, but like no one says anything about the good hair part. And that's that for me is like a little bit weird, but it's also something that a lot of black women and a lot of black femmes have pointed out. <laughs> I'm banning all rap this year at the awards. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I love hip hop. Obviously. But tonight, it's all about soul. Okay. Hold on a second. I got another call. Wait a minute. No, honestly, man, you are my favorite artist out right now. But I ain't letting anybody in with no littles and youngs and they name. Yeah. Hang on one second. I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, yes. Who is this? Iggy Azalea. Yeah, hey. Oh, no, 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 no. You can come, because what you're doing is definitely not rap. Yeah. Yeah, I got on my overalls. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to send an Uber for you right now. Yeah, come on, be outside. This week, we've been talking about homelessness and the housing crisis, and Amina Ziad has the story for us. On any given night, one in 200 people across Australia experience homelessness. For every 10,000 people in the state of Victoria, about 43 people experience homelessness. 
However, the government's response to homelessness is to further privatize housing, decreasing the numbers of available public housing and increasing an already lengthy wait waiting list of approximately 10 to 20 years. A group of people, however, have taken action against homelessness. Members of the Homeless Persons Union Victoria occupied a vacant house on 2 Bendigo Street as a public protest to raise awareness of the housing and homelessness crisis. I spoke to Spike from the Homeless Persons Union Victoria to find out more. Yeah, this is about, this action, this occupation is about drawing attention to the housing crisis in Victoria and the fact that public housing is being privatised um, through community or social housing, which is, there's a big difference. Um, difference being that uh, social or community housing is, uh, can be owned by the government but not always, um, you, you're forced, you can be forced to pay over 30% of your income in rent. They cherry-pick their tenants who are the most functional. Um, their rights, um, for example, if, if they lose their job, their rent doesn't go up and down just like in public housing. It's, fixed, it's a fixed sort of um, rate. Um, that community and social housing is... Subsidy is corporate. People get um, rent assistance to live in social and public housing. So then, we're basically the taxpayers subsidising the corporatisation of housing, of public housing. Um, and so that that is another reason why we got involved is because we believe that public housing should be a universal human right in this country. There is a reason for deliberately grouping public and community housing together under social housing. The confusion makes the discourse hard to follow, and maybe that's what those in power want in order to maintain the status quo. Some are overrepresented in these demographic statistics. Australia's Indigenous population make up about 3% of the total population, yet account for almost 30% for those experiencing homelessness. Queer youth are four times likely to experience homelessness than their cis-heteronormative counterparts due to family rejection. Almost half of the homeless population are women, many escaping domestic violence and abuse. I spoke to Spike, who mentions a little more about who are amongst the homeless and how they came to be homeless. Because they've been denied access to housing, long-term housing. It, it's a, it should be a universal right, just like Medicare, healthcare is. Why not housing? I, I don't think that's a controversial, actually. I, you know... And I don't think anyone here thinks it's controversial either. I think it's controversial for the people in power because they don't want to be seen to be rewarding what they see as dysfunctional behaviour. Right. These people don't work, they're lazy, yeah. uh, they've got drug problems, they drink too much. Well, yeah. there's a, you know, you don't, when you're a, a 10 or 12-year-old, you your ambition isn't to, be, uh, to sleep under a tree. Mm. What's happened to people over that time for them to lose all their dreams, ambitions, their goals, their, uh, their self-worth? You know, domestic violence, uh, abuse, sexual assault, um, gambling, drinking problems. These all happen within the home. They keep talking about family values and the family being the cornerstone. You know, conservatives talk a lot about how important the family is. But the family is also the site of some of the greatest battles that where people are brutalised. And it's not just privatisation, property investment and speculation. 
Gentrification is another contributing factor, pushing new migrants out and fracturing societies. You mentioned before that your parents were um, immigrants from Italy. Yeah. Um, and also, I've been thinking about this for a while, and I'm not too sure how relevant it is. But say, like, gentrified neighborhoods, or neighborhoods being gentrified, um, like Footscray, where there's lots of migrants, um, low-income households, with the gentrification, is that increasing the risk of homelessness or pushing people yes, towards homelessness? because again, we, yeah. if we talk about community, these families are being pushed out onto the perimeters of the city. So workers are forced further and further out away from where they work, from the communities that they lived in, like um, their, their family links, the commu- like extended family, like uncles, brothers, sisters, they all can't move together. For example, when my, my parents... I was born in Richmond. As the family got bigger and they started closing down the factories, uh, my parents moved out to Thomastown and I lost contact with my cousins, my aunt. Um, so the community was broken down. All, all the supports that I grew up with up until I was five disappeared. And so you're left as just this single family unit. To deal with the world, you know, you know, the world as it is, and and you struggle because, you know, people do need community. The people, someone who they know that they trust that they can speak to, um, you know. There's also a lot of racism in this country. Um, I think, yeah, yeah. Um, the difficulties that people face when they've been moved out of somewhere where they feel comfortable, like if they've come from overseas, and they've done the hard yards and made somewhere home in Footscray see Richmond's been gentrified Carlton's been gentrified Fitzroy is just about gentrified you know, Brunswick Street Collingwood is the next is next um, Carlton has been gentrified so all these working families that used to live there have been forced out, forced out into the perimeters of the city where some of them are, are, a lot of people are living by themselves away from their families and away from you know shops that they knew, uh, neighbourhoods that they knew, and people that you know from different backgrounds they that they develop relationships with. So yeah, definitely gentrification is part of that. During the course of the Bendigo Street occupation, they've made allies. One in particular is activist Javed, who says gentrification is not about people's needs, but rather about investment. The the drivers behind gentrification being based in like you know especially in property speculation and investment like th- those are things that tend to push you know a housing market that's not about people's needs but it's about yeah investment and about about profit and about wealth accumulation um, and and yeah people do get displaced like you know I've seen people displaced by gentrification and there is more homelessness and social stigma off and structural spite for homelessness drives a cycle of imprisonment. Spike tells me how the day-to-day survival becomes incriminating. Because if we, if, we, if we continue to sit on our hands just like they have, people are going to be forced... In, I mean, they're going to be forced into doing... Uh, they're, they're going to be criminalised. Or maybe the, how, the housing... Um, the, they see that, you know, the people in power see that the solution to the housing problem is prison. Because that's where people are going to end up. You know, for drinking in public, urinating in public, but if to- and, or defecating in public. But if the toilets are closed, you get busted two or three times defecating, urinating in public, or maybe four times, 
or for trespass because you wanted you wanted to find some shelter, you end up in prison. So is that is that what the answer to homelessness is? Uh, the, the, the prison system. Is that happening now? Oh, definitely. Look, I've spoken to people that say a oh, winter's coming. I think I might get locked up. You know, and 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 for some people, that's the only thing they know. So what drives people to occupy spaces like Bendigo Street? Java tells us his story. There was a group of four women, homeless women, um, who were squatting one of these houses. And, and these this strip of houses, and along with, you know, m- m- you know up to 120, we don't know, other houses were, were acquired for building the East-West Link. Um, and then when that project was... Uh, abandoned they uh, there was there were commitments made about a lot of these houses being handed over those were the words used um, for the use um, to, to ad- address the issue of homelessness in Melbourne um, and a lot of a lot of them some of them have been um, but this particular strip seems to have been vacant for quite a long time um, and yes yeah, so these four women um, took it upon themselves to inhabit one of these houses and they were squatting there for a while um, and were eventually moved by the police on the authority of the department of um, uh, this kind of mouthful of a department called the Department of Economics, um, Jobs, Transport and Roads and probably something else, um, uh, who, despite saying at the time that they would find them alternative housing arrangements, didn't um, and effectively took these four women who were home, otherwise homeless out of a comfortable house um, and took them back out onto the... and like, threw them back out onto the street, essentially. But how many empty houses are there and what's being done for people experiencing homelessness in Victoria? There's 25,000 homeless people in Victoria, you know, more than 30,000 people on, on waiting lists for public housing that are 20 years long, you know, people you know, who are, rec- like even the people that the state recognises to have those urgent needs for housing, you know, they, they say, the state says, you know, you have to wait 20 years. Um, and the, also the fact that there's 80,000 empty houses in Melbourne, um, which is something that, you know, that uh, bodies which represent property investors and developers, you know, are really clamouring to deny these statistics, but they're based on water usage. Like they're, they're arguing that these properties... Uh, uh, are being used when they're just not using any water. And I think that's actually a very reliable metric of, of whether these properties are being used or not. So I think, yeah, the, the, the idea that, or, that um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a shortage of supply, which um, is the, the idea that's most often thrown around as an as a explanation of why there's a housing crisis. You know, people say that it's because we don't have enough housing, but there, there are 80,000 empty houses in Melbourne. Like, that's a shockingly large amount um, and they're in places that people want to live like 20% of Docklands is vacant. Often people isolate homeless people from the wider community and view homelessness as a choice rather than a structural issue. This is something that affects a lot of people I mean it seems like housing is about you know lifestyle or something like that but housing is connected to so many things about people's health whether they're able to find you know stability in their lives whether they're able to um, escape violence if they, you know, like that was like, I think, uh, as the, the, the recent report of the Royal Commission into family violence found that housing is a real, you know, a real input into some of these kinds of violence. 
Um, and I think, you know, being aware that, you know, housing is not an isolated issue of just where you get to live and how, and how nice your house is. And that's, and that's how people tend to reduce it. But it's actually something that's really basic to the, the kind of safety and flourishing of, of everybody. But at the end of the day, there's one thing Spike wants others to know about homeless people. Don't just look at them as people that are homeless. They're just, they're people first. They're people that have the same needs, wants, desires, hopes, dreams as everyone else. That they've been forced to forget those to meet their, ba- you know, in 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 the battle to meet their basic needs on a daily basis, whether it be food, access to a toilet, a shower, somewhere to lie down, somewhere to have a cup of coffee, somewhere where they can look in a mirror. <laughs> These are things that people take for granted. It's just like begin to think. How would it be if you wake up, and there's no alarm clock, but it was the traffic that woke you up. How can we expect these people to function in a working environment under those sort of circumstances? I suggest that people think about public policy and the way it's impacting people. And I think about shit. You know, and they say that everyone's three three paychecks, um, three pa- three paychecks from being homeless. That if you li- if you don't work for three weeks, you end up on the street. That that's one of the sayings within the homeless sector. So I would suggest that people think about that. Think about what it means to have a common humanity, because that's all we have. Thanks, Amina, for that story. That was uh, Amina's yard story and housing and homeless people, and the crisis that's uh, inflicting a lot of Victorians at the moment. Um, and, and I guess you uh, that's our show for this week. Uh, thanks for everyone that's been listening. Um, and before we do leave you and your earbuds, I guess uh, remember you can subscribe on ACAS and iTunes. Maybe leave us a rating. Someone recently left us a rating, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, so yep leave leave us another rating and (laughs) hopefully uh, and also you can find us on Facebook facebook facebook.com forward slash racecart show you can find us on Twitter at racecart pod you can find you Amina where can they find you they can find me on Twitter at Amina's yard A-M-E-N-A-Z-I-A-R-D awesome and uh, you can find me at Ahmed Yusuf 10 the number 10 you can find us on Tumblr as well uh, racecardpodcast.tumblr.com and our website racecardpodcast.com and uh, that's me saying goodbye thank you for listening you're such a great audience yeah bye Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. One, two. Yeah, that's much better, actually. All right, let's start. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.